Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly scamper up the mountain of IT news. Greg Farrow's away this week, so Packet Pushers co-founder Ethan Banks is stepping in. We got stories on new products from Juniper, big growth in the SASE market, price hikes from Intel, and more. We're sponsored in part today by Juniper Networks and it's Juniper SD-WAN driven by Mist AI. You can get a live SD-WAN demo to see how you can deploy SD-WAN quickly and simply. Get fine-grained application awareness and enhanced visibility into the end-user experience. Sign up today at juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. And then stick around for a Tech Bytes podcast. We're talking with sponsor Thousand Eyes, discussing their latest capability called WAN Insights that analyzes WAN performance data to help remove SD-WAN blind spots and give network engineers a better understanding of whether their providers are delivering as promised. By the way, if you like Network Break, we've got a bunch of other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, which Ethan co-hosts. There's Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Heavy Strategy, and our newest show, Kubernetes Unpacked. It's currently available in the community channel. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get into the news. Juniper Networks has announced a new family of campus access switches. This is the EX4100 series. Features include support for eVPN VXLAN, MacSec encryption, and Power Over Ethernet++, which can provide more watts to IoT and Wi-Fi devices than previous versions of PoE. Ethan, what did you think of this announcement? Uh, yep, they are slotting this in to your network where you can uh, do some AI magic with it because Juniper's all about the AI magic these they days, sure true. Are. Um, they sure they, are. <laughs> and this will will fit into that world of uh, of Mist AI. I believe all that IP comes out of the Mist acquisition uh, and uh, and help you troubleshooting a number of things. So this switch is meant to be my, my vibe on this switch through the forty one hundred VX forty one hundred easy to operate. That's really what they're going for here. So it it stands up with uh, zero touch provisioning. It's got automated workflows. It's doing event correlation across the stack. That is, I, I interpret that to mean taking events from several different sources and then correlating them together so you can actually see what's going on rather than you trying to parcel all of the different logs together into an understanding of what actually happened and then as you mentioned it's got some of the fancier stuff like evpn vxlan and maxec aes 256 etc so they want you to be able to put this switch into your network have it be easy to run and operate and then support all the wi-fi things and the iot things with that uh, that poe plus plus yeah i thought it was interesting that it supports evpn vxlan because to me that's typically a data center thing but it seems like we're seeing those protocol combos get pushed out to the campus if folks are looking to build a campus fabric uh, my take on that is it's it's about that multi-tenancy, keeping different folks that don't really need to talk to each other or application communications that don't need to coincide and share the same segment and uh, and then segmenting them and keeping them apart from one another. It gives you also a check and balance to be able to apply policies to different EVPN VXLAN segments. So not shocked to see that overlay uh, find its way into the enterprise here. Although I agree with you, certainly data center is where it's, where it got its uh, grounding. Right. But we are seeing more interest in being able to do fine grain segmentation, micro segmentation in terms of I've got guest networks, I've got, you know, IOT networks, I've got business traffic that I want to isolate from others. And, you know, VLAN has its limits. So VXLAN gets me I think, thousands more opportunities to segment traffic. 
that and then also um, another avenue for encryption if you wanted to uh, to do it that way. Uh, Drew, the Juniper announcement went on from just that EX4100 switch. They also announced a couple of other features here that caught my attention. Uh, one was AP placement improvements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea there was uh, using... Again, missed AI magic. You can uh, ingest a floor plan, which they've been able to do that before. They ingest Ikahau and IP, IB Wave floor plans. And the new magic is using virtual Bluetooth LE antenna arrays plus 802.11mc, which uh, incorporates Wi Fi round trip times. And then figure out from there is the AP that's actually been mounted in the building in accordance with the floor plan did it get put up in the air where it's supposed to be and are the antennas aiming the right direction which i i thought was pretty cool to be able to use all that data to figure that stuff out um 802 11 mc that uh, wi-fi round trip time feature allows you to position or figure out where an ap is positioned within a tolerance of uh, one to two meters so pretty neat stuff and i thought cool especially if you're doing a really massive installation of access points covering uh, an awful lot of clients where that placement and antenna directionality could be really important. And if you get it wrong, it could really impact user experience if they're on your Wi-Fi networks. That was a pretty neat feature. Then, And then did you see the uh, the Marvis feature, Drew? I don't know what you thought of that. Uh, which Mar- There were a couple of them. Which one are you talking about? Well, the Marvis one that I saw was the updates to the uh, to the virtual assistant. So they're right. There were a couple of features here with um, the new uh, Windows client they've added, but then uh, also diagnosing DHCP failures and stuff. Uh, I, I, Marvis has been around for a while in the Juniper world as this virtual network assistant to help you figure out what's going on and what's what's not going on on the network. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I believe they call them Marvis actions, and they're sort of like um, you know predefined automated remediations that the Marvis uh, AI system can say, "Hey, we saw this problem. Do you want us to fix it?" Uh, and they've got a list of them, and so they've added new ones, like you mentioned, diagnosing DHCP failures, and then pairing with some remediation actions when possible, which I thought was uh, was interesting. And DHCP failures are one of those like that doesn't happen that often but as you get into port filtering and doing specific control actions where you're trying to limit what communications are happening across a specific port because you're really tightly controlling what's going on in your network uh, dcp failures could be an accidental thing that maybe mm-hmm. you have a remediation action that's like oops we were too restrictive on this port or something along those lines i thought might be a use case there yeah so links in the show notes if you want to find out more about what Juniper is up to, the new products and the new Marvis capabilities. Uh, we're going to move on. Canadian ISP Rogers says it's going to credit customers for five days of service after a massive outage that disrupted internet and cell connectivity across the country. Besides internet users not being able to get online, the outage affected ATMs, emergency service calls, and government services. Uh, the outage itself lasted at least 15 hours, and some customers had still reported no service more than a day after Rogers said it fixed the problem. Comedy gold, Drew. Five days. How generous. Uh, people were massively impacted by this outage. Rogers is one of the few ISPs that are up there in Canada. And uh, when they go down hard, like they went down hard, and it affects services, business is disrupted in a major way. Government services were disrupted. Uh, retail services were disrupted. It was a big deal. So for them to give everybody five days of uh, of a service credit is... 
it's a drop in the ocean of uh, of damage that they they caused. It really is. And there's commenters online saying it should be a month uh, or more even of credit for the problems it caused. Uh, I don't know what the competitive uh, market is like in Canada for broadband and ISP services, how easy it would be to switch. I assume it's better than the U.S. because we're terrible, but maybe uh, Rogers knows that it's got essentially a captive base that it can get away with kind of a, you know, a, a, a pat on the head. Sorry about that kind of offering. I think it is a, um, a difficult scenario. You've got Bell up there. You've got Rogers. I want to say there's one other one. I don't know footprints and reach. I do not believe, I, I, do, I do think there's kind of a monopoly kind mm-hmm. of a situation here where if you've got Rogers and they go down, it's not like it's easy to switch. And even if you want it to switch, those things always take time. You know, it's, yep. it's difficult to get that kind of stuff done. Yeah. Um, now, if the cause of it, they also haven't been very forthcoming. <laughs> there was this vague note of, yeah, we made some change uh, to the network on a Thursday night and uh, it didn't go great. And it seemed like a cascading failure kind of problem that happened after that change. And it just took them a long time to undo the damage. So it's... Wow, it was a tough one. Yeah, I've been probing for technical detail. Rogers itself has said almost nothing. I think that one sentence was about it uh, from Rogers. There's a Cloudflare blog that says it's been it was watching um, you know Rogers uh, BGP presence and it saw B- BGP fixes being withdrawn around 8:45 a.m. UTC, which essentially made the network invisible. And after that, they just took forever to get back up. So was it BGP? We don't know, but. <laughs> Sounds like a change that affected BGP, right? And if yes, they stop announcing sure. their routes and disappear, then uh, right. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a problem. That's unfortunate. <laughs> that is unfortunate. Uh, one other note on this: uh, bleeping computer reports that a phishing scam is going around targeting Rogers customers. You might get an email or an SMS message that says, uh, "Click here to get your rebate." Uh, you should not do that. Rogers says the rebate's going to be uh, given automatically. You don't have to do anything. So watch out for those kind of scams. Uh, Moving on, the market for cloud-delivered security services grew 40% year-over-year. That's according to a report from the Deloro Group. They're tracking the security services edge market, also known as SASE. And that includes things like cloud-delivered security for secure web gateways, firewalls as a service, CASBs or cloud access security brokers, and zero-trust networking. Yeah, so I I, I like this story. Uh, When I see anything as a service like this, especially when it's cloud-delivered, networking. I go, yes, I want that. And and here's the reason why I have maintained an awful lot of firewalls in my life. And there's design challenges with that. And even if you begin virtualizing firewalls, you have more flexibility with where you place them in your environment. It doesn't solve the problem you have of now I got all this data going back and forth to my to my multi-cloud. I get hybrid cloud is dead, Drew, right? It's all multi-cloud now. We right. just, none of this hybrid anymore. Hybrid, so, but, yes. but if, I, if I am moving data back and forth to the multi-cloud and I want some kind of a unified uh, firewall access policy, uh, if I'm trying to do that in the old device-oriented model where I'm thinking about this thing I have to place here and then push traffic through it so policy can be enforced from a network design perspective, that sucks. So when I'm seeing... A report like this that announces these services are growing year over year. Yeah, from a design perspective as an engineer, this frees up some things for me and also takes the burden of maintaining the stupid firewall, which ends up, if I don't maintain it, becoming a vulnerable <laughs> source of vulnerability for me. I, yeah, I want that. So I'm not surprised that this is growing. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing people being more comfortable with pushing more capabilities into the cloud, even security capabilities. 
Uh, you'll still run into issues with, you know, uh, wanting to make sure that performance and policy is, you know, easy to handle because when you're starting to put together an entire list of policy controls around secure web gateway, what, you know, what websites people can access, firewall inspection, all of that, uh, it can get very messy. But the fact that you don't have to manage any of the, that hardware, uh, particularly if you're a large distributed organization, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I expect that this uh, kind of thing is going to continue to grow. And, um, uh, we're seeing more and more offerings come into the space too. It was, I mean, we've seen it grow from SD-WAN to now we're adding all of these security services uh, on top of the SD-WAN offering. So it was simple, you know, magic routing with an overlay to, oh yeah, we're going to embed all the security stuff here. And a few vendors really specialize in that to now everybody's jumping on board. So I think we're seeing you know, growth, but growth as a, as, a, as a leading indicator that this is a market that's going to continue to grow and all of the big players. So if you're you're a, a Cisco or Juniper or Palo or Fortinet shop, um, they're all going to have offerings in this space for you over time. Yeah, certainly uh, the ones you mentioned and more, there's also Zscaler, which has been in this market for a very long time. And I think they're feeling like, hey, we, we were here first. Why isn't everybody talking to us? But they've been around Netscope and others. Uh, yeah, so plenty of choice if you're looking to get into this space. I think 40% growth is astounding, but that's partly because they were essentially starting from zero or near zero. Uh, so to get that kind of take up pretty quickly is amazing, but I don't anticipate we're going to see 40% numbers going forward as you know the market starts to cool off. There is a challenge here with it being a displacement play for those folks that are heavily invested in uh, hardware firewalls, perimeter security, and that sort of design. Or maybe they went VMware. They're a big NSX shop. There are paradigms in place that mean it could be difficult to displace those folks that already have that established infrastructure and security enforcement design in play that, uh, right, as you say, starting from zero, coming up with a 40% growth number is much easier than getting to the point of, okay, the people that were the easy buys, we got right. them. We got them. Now we've got to, <laughs> to get those people, their old designs, either out of there or figure out how to connect to them easily uh, to get that spend. Right. Or even if you're a Palo Alto, do you want people who are buying your appliances to stop buying those appliances and start using cloud services? I mean, assume they'll figure out a way to license you for the same amount of money. But yeah, there are a lot of issues in play. Exactly. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Juniper, and its SD-WAN offering. You can attend one of Juniper's live SD-WAN demos to see for yourself how Juniper connects clients to cloud and how session-based visibility and fine-grained application-aware session-smart routing brings you huge benefits. Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI, simplifies network deployments and operations. It's a scalable solution, has an intuitive management platform, and enhanced visibility into the end-user experience. That means you can save time on everything from deployment to ongoing troubleshooting. And Juniper believes that experience is the new uptime. Juniper provides top-notch user experience with a session-oriented architecture that can reduce latency by up to 60%. Users will enjoy noticeable improvements in application performance and critical voice and video calls. And last but not least, thanks to a unique tunnel-free architecture, customers can expect up to 75% reduction in head-end infrastructure costs and up to 50% reduction in bandwidth costs. If you want to find out more and see a demo, go to juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. Thank Juniper for being a sponsor. Every time I hear that ad, I always latch on to that tunnel-free <laughs> architecture <laughs> component because that just, always throws me. They will not but let go I, of it's that. Like, but, well, it comes from the 128T acquisition, right, right. which goes back you know a few years now. But that's it is 128T uh, magic and how they're doing that tunnel free thing. Anyway, just wanted to mention that because it always throws me. And uh, but I, but I know what's going on there, and it is indeed tunnel free. 
All right, back to the news. Chipmaker Intel is informing customers to expect price increases as soon as this autumn in server and computer CPUs, wireless chips, and other products. And this is coming from a report in Nikkei Asia, citing unnamed industry execs. This is not going to change soon, Drew. <laughs> the, uh, the the price, the chips are just going to increase in price of, of necessity because of, in my opinion, uh, a few things here. Supply chain problems are still not solved. There's still a it's difficult to get product through the pipelines to meet all the demands that are out there. Um, that's one. Two, we've got inflation. And so now there's you know costs all over the place across mm -hmm. the board, mm -hmm. driving uh, price increases you know everywhere. So it's kind of kind of feeding on itself, just um, the, everyone's costs driven by demand, driven by you know people who are still employed and still have money and in many cases are still have some sort of government assistance tied back to the pandemic. All of that has pushed us to the point of uh, essentially a breaking point within the supply chain. Um, so I'm not surprised that Intel is at a point where it's like, it's just costing us more to make chips. And so, you know, our, our what we're going to charge you to get those chips is going to have to go up. That makes sense. But but I don't know that it lasts forever, Drew. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of... New, additional interest rate hikes that are coming in an attempt to slow down a still red hot economy that right. is driving all of the uh, the supply challenges and inflation right now. I mean, there's rumors of a 100 basis point, so basically a one percent increase in rate hikes coming from the U.S. Fed here in uh, in late July. It's it's rumored. We'll see if they actually do it. But they're like it's not off the table, which is kind of like ah, wow, they're thinking about that. That's for reals. <laughs> Okay, so if it costs that much more to borrow money, that's going to slow down investments. It's going to slow down uh, a lot of things. Maybe it's going to cause layoffs. Maybe that'll slow the economy down. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to get to here uh, so that inflation slows down. And then maybe if it doesn't, it's not going to reduce the cost of making a chip, but maybe it slows down the rate at which those costs are we're increasing. Are increased. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Intel is blaming the rising cost of components of shipping and labor, um, and price increases are expected to range from the single digits to as much as 20%, uh, depending on the product. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Intel did signal that this uh, price increase was coming in its most recent quarterly earnings. Uh, they said they were examining their, quote, price mix. So that was a signal that uh, this could be coming. I will say, though, that I've been reading other stories on the chip uh, market, and while Intel is raising costs, consumer demand is dropping for smartphones, for PCs, for gaming consoles, for other consumer gear. And there are some chip makers saying, we're starting to get a glut of uh, inventory here that we have too much inventory now because we ramped up production so fast uh, to meet that demand that is now slowing. So we are, I think, in a strange place where, you know, uh, costs might still be high, labor might still be high, but those chip inventories may be starting to backfill again, at least in certain sectors. That's happening in other sectors too, unrelated to tech, uh, retail, I know, uh, clothing um, has come up as one that's starting to have a glut because they, mm -hmm. they started making all kinds of uh, clothing to fill certain demands and prepare the shelves for expected demand that is starting to no longer be there as the world slowly returns to normal. And as prices are getting to be so high that people are just saying no. So mm -hmm. things like, you know, phones, Geez, how good do you need your phone to be? Do you really need a new phone every year? You, you don't. It does the same thing the last one did. And you right. can hardly tell the difference for 99% of what you do. You know, right. Gaming consoles are the same thing. How amazing do you need your games to look and what kind of frame rate do you need in order to enjoy playing a game? 
so why would we be, what, what's driving us as consumers to buy the latest and the greatest thing every year? So I'm not surprised to see some of that demand going down and then ironically, a glut of products in the, in the supply chain as folks have been, you know, companies have been uh, anticipating demand that is starting to fizzle out. Right. So we've got competing forces going on here, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming quarters as we you know, sort of work our way through uh, inflationary pressures, potential recessionary pressures, and all of that in the market. It's fun, fun times. Ooh, you said potential recessionary. You <laughs> I did. I said, oh, no, I, I invoked it. That's, <laughs> speak <laughs> it's not. not going to happen. Speak not the R Soft word. <laughs> landing, buddy. Soft landing. <laughs> all right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Uh, sticking with chips, the U.S. Senate may be voting soon on a bill that would subsidize development of the U.S. semiconductor industry with as much as $54 billion in government money being made available to boost semiconductor manufacturing on U.S. soil. Tax incentives are also likely to be made available. The investment's being positioned as a kind of strategic reaction to thwart China's dominance in semiconductor manufacturing and to ensure, quote, access to a steady, secure supply of microelectronics. And that quote's coming from the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Yeah, and this is a common technique. Government assistance like this, it's it, it's commonplace. You know, we don't have Tesla as we know it today if they didn't get a lot of government subsidies to get that company off the ground. And right, and if consumers didn't get a discount for buying a, an electric car, yeah, which was oh, subsidized yes, exactly. by the government. Yeah, 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 great point. Yeah, the, all the tax breaks you get, and, and the same thing with solar. Um, there's still tax breaks going on right through 2022 in the U.S. Um, to to put solar on your roof. Wish I lived somewhere where that was a good idea. I don't. <laughs> uh, but to build a chip manufacturing plant is is tons of money. It's billions. It really and is. And it's yeah. hard to get it done well. And and from what I'm reading about new chip manufacturing techniques, like going from five nanometer to three nanometer, well, the 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 more it's not really a size thing. The nanometers is kind of a way to you know suggest what the manufacturing process is. It doesn't actually have anything to do with literal nanometers anymore. But the it is becoming difficult as you find these efficiencies that cause the chip that you generate to have a lower power draw and run more efficiently. You also end up with a lower yield. So to get the manufacturing process right so that your yields are acceptable at these more efficient processing techniques, uh, it's just, it's hard. It's a lot of money. You need a lot of research. You need a lot of science tied into it in addition to the manufacturing and fabrication processes itself. So to have the government step in and go, hey, look, we, we want to be able to do some of this uh, in the U.S. We want to have some more control over this ourselves and not be completely beholden to uh, Chinese-based manufacturing processes. It's not surprising that they throw a lot of money at this, and it seems like a smart idea, especially considering, uh, if not any of those things, just the supply chain constraints to be able to source your own chips, if you will, from a U.S.-based a plant is going to be desirable for some U.S.-based companies, I think. Yeah, I understand the sort of macroeconomic picture. I still, part of me has a hard time with multi-billion dollar companies and CEOs making millions and millions of dollars every year in compensation saying, oh, we need a handout from the government to build this plant. That that irritates me, but I also understand that, yes, <laughs> these are complex plants. They are very expensive to spin up. Uh, there's lots of concerns. About it. Just You mentioned just buying one of the machines, you know, from the Dutch company uh, that that makes them is, you know, millions or billions of dollars. And, and you also need labor force, you need training, you need land, you need water access. There's a whole tangle of issues. Uh, so getting some government help does make sense. And I do think you can make a strategic argument about U.S. Uh, reliance on overseas manufacturers could be problematic uh, if, you know, some kind of conflict emerges in the future. So, yes, there is, I think, some appetite uh, for private industry and government partnership here. 
Well, Drew, I have one point of comfort for you, if you, uh, for the part of you that is resistant <laughs> to giving these wealthy companies and CEOs billions of dollars. Can the U.S. legislative branch in 2022 get anything done? <laughs> I submit that perhaps they cannot. So maybe this doesn't happen. We'll see. Cold comfort. Cold comfort. All right. Our last story for the day. Uh, a security researcher has discovered a bug in Honda's remote keyless entry system that could let an attacker unlock doors and maybe even start the vehicle. An attacker armed with a software-defined radio could essentially capture the codes used by a remote keyless entry system and replay those codes to get access to the car. Uh, the researcher says affected models from Honda include Accords, Civics, Odysseys, and others through model year 2022. Yeah, and you know the cold comfort here is the uh, the fact that it's a replay attack. So that is, yeah, your car might be vulnerable, but if you're not being targeted, then it's not a huge risk to you. Right. Uh, someone would have to, with the software defined radio, capture the the transmissions going through the air between your keyless fob and the car, uh, capture those to have something to replay to right. execute the replay attack. Yes. So. You know, do people really want to get in your car? You know, I don't know. <laughs> if you've got a nice minivan, maybe somebody's hanging around outside for a few hours waiting for you to get in so they can steal it and resell it. But yeah, it's not it's it's not the same thing like, you know, uh, malicious malware that spreads easily. This is a replay attack where the attacker has to be, you know, within uh, a specific range of an individual car. So it's it's not widespread, but I still think it is problematic. Uh, the other thing that I found interesting, uh, Vice News reported on the story and they reached out to Honda. Uh, they reported that the car maker responded by saying, this is, quote, old news, and that the company doesn't as yet have enough information to determine if the exploit is credible. Uh, they made some other comments that felt like Honda was sort of like, not a big deal. We're not that worried about it, which is not really the kind of response you want to hear when there's a security vulnerability. That was not well crafted of a response. It was a terrible it's, it's old news. We've known about this forever. Oh, this has been a problem for a long time. Old news. And we don't even know if it's credible. Guys, come on. It's right. been a demonstrated attack. It's credible. It's it's a doable thing. It's happening. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, that they, is, they need that a little, is the ultimate they need a little training that on, down. The yeah, how to respond to a security threat. That is not the way to do it. Uh, uh, no, yeah, we've no, got a link no, no. in the show notes if you want to read <laughs> their response uh, and also a link to the actual research itself, which is called Rolling Pwn, by the way, which I think is funny. I love uh, hackers with a sense of humor. <laughs> All right, that wraps up the news portion. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Thousand Eyes on its new WAN Insights capability to get visibility to SD-WAN blind spots. Uh, before we get that, Ethan, it's been a while since you've been on Network Break. So if you want to update folks on where you are on the internet, where they can find you, where should they go? Yeah, folks, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at EC Banks. Uh, I try to tweet nerdy things. I try to keep it positive. And I'll even send you a picture of pretty mountains I've been hiking uh, once in a while. And my blog is EthanCBanks.com. I, uh, I also post nerdy stuff and occasionally opinion pieces and so on. Ethan, thanks for stepping in. It's always good to have you on the show. Uh, and again, stick around for our Thousand Eyes conversation that's coming right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we look at how to get better visibility into the WAN. Our sponsor is Thousand Eyes, and we're going to discuss their latest capability called WAN Insights. It analyzes WAN performance data to help remove SD-WAN blind spots and give network engineers a better understanding of whether their providers are delivering as promised. Our Thousand Eyes guest is Prab Singh. He is Group PM for Internet and WAN at Thousand Eyes. Prab, welcome to the podcast. And can you get us started with a quick overview of the new WAN Insights offering and what it does? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, WAN Insights, we recently launched this at Cisco Live, and we're really excited about it because it's our first foray into helping our users understand network changes and make network changes before they happen. 
we're doing this based upon Cisco SD-WAN initially, where we can actually help you make recommendations on how to optimize your SD-WAN network using the power of data and heuristics that allow us to make these recommendations that allow users to essentially prevent network problems from happening that can be uh, analyzed over a long period of time. Now, this is where Thousand Eyes has always done this. You, you generate insights from probes and data collection and monitoring what's happening in the network. But in the past, it's always been sort of a, it's been on the page and you look at it and you can see what's happening. It looks to me like this is much more of a proactive, that is Thousand Eyes where an insight says, we're now saying this is this is probably a problem here, or this is a problem here, or this user's having problems here. It needs something done to it. Is that what we're, where we're headed? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so yeah. over the years, as Thousand Eyes, you know, has provided internet visibility. That's what we really centered around as users get access to applications increasingly in the cloud, you know, internet plays a really large role. And so is the SD-WAN and essentially allowing our, our users to be able to re-architect their networks to better consume these applications. And over the years, as we've, you know, provide a thousand eyes visibility, customers have always asked us, if I'm seeing a problem, is it just me or is this a broader network problem across the internet? Mm. And so thousand eyes internet insights is our existing product that's existed over, over many years that predicts or, or essentially looks at, instead of predictions, it's actually looking at real used, real thousand eyes data from cloud and enterprise agents that we generate and is helping our users understand, is there a broader network problem as seen across all of our customers in real time? Now, with WAN Insights, it's a bit different because what we're actually doing is using flow records that are generated through vManage um, and the router, the SD-WAN routers to understand what are the common application traffics and application traffic across the site going to different, different applications, right. um, as well as looking at BFD probes to try to understand the underlying network, SD-WAN tunnel health. And the idea there being, how can we actually do use research and the power of data to understand, are there recurring network problems that happen that essentially can be prevented by further optimizing your SD-WAN configuration above and beyond what application-aware routing yeah. allows you to yeah. do today? So this is really this idea that um, I think the way that I see this type of thing is that as networks get more complicated, like with SD-WAN, particularly running over the public WAN or the internet, you don't know what's actually bandwidth is there. And your ability to monitor it is not like the way we used to do it doesn't work anymore. You need better ways. You actually have to say, I have to do some in-network monitoring of the telemetry systems. And so and that generally means streaming data. And then you can say, hang on, this application flow isn't meeting response time performance. And then you need to flag that to the user. So this completes the automation cycle. SD-WAN solves a whole bunch of problems, but it doesn't um, it creates another set of problems because you're, you know, if you've got a private link and a public link and your other end, some of it's going to the public cloud, some of it's going to the data center, you just need to get across all of the possible combinations. It's this complexity. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think one of the things that's happened over the years is SD-WAN allows you to manage your WAN at scale using software-defined networking. But with that has come this complexity around actually understanding what's happening across the network, mm -hmm. especially as a network is now a best effort SLA-less network like the internet. Mm -hmm. um, visibility has always been a key part. Um, I think many solutions on the market provide some level of visibility to try to understand what's actually happening across the SD-WAN so you can essentially react to network conditions. So SD, it's been a core kind of a, a tenet of SD-WAN to be able to actually use 
SLA policies uh, that are custom configured typically by users to, to essentially for their meeting for whatever application category that they really care about, defining those SLAs and having the SUN essentially react to those problems. Mm. What we've realized over, over time is while that helps our users better configure SUN at scale, it still leads to these chronic problems that are, that are happening because they're chronically bad WAN circuits. Mm, yeah, um, yep. And when that happens, you know, SD-WAN, depending upon its convergence times, will actually reroute you to a different path to for that application category. But that can mean minutes, sometimes hours uh, worth of actually reconvergence times that actually causes user pain. Yeah. How can we actually prevent that user pain from happening by using the power of data. And that's really the problem we're trying to go solve with Wine Insights. Yeah. When, when you've got all that data for like combined with what you've got from the internet, you know, from the core product. And now what you're saying is I'm starting to monitor the network that goes over the top. And, but you're also saying that because you can see the data from many customers, you can actually do a lot more predictive stuff because you can say, well, that whole region of the internet or that provider from the internet, we've got 50 customers who have got problems in that area. Therefore, there's a consideration. There's something happening. Yeah, I think there's actually quite a bit of power in looking at the data that we already have across the internet uh, used by our own proprietary data that we collect from agents and the data that now we're able to get from SD-WAN systems like Cisco SD-WAN that allow us to marry those two and eventually be able to provide something like we're seeing your SD current SD-WAN configuration have you know meet these SLAs and this percentage of time your users are actually getting the experience that you would want versus actually what we're actually seeing is these set of users are not seeing the experience that they see. So out of the box, what WAN Insights does, it automatically looks at flow records and BFD probes to understand for five custom application categories, like mm -hmm. um, Salesforce, any Office 365 based application in, in, under that suite, voice based applications that could be, you know, Cisco yeah. WebEx, Zoom, et cetera, mm -hmm. real time um, and, and G Suite. So if you are a G Suite customer using that, but we actually look at where traffic is going across your SD-WAN there and try to understand, is there a problem across this particular WAN path for that site, for that application traffic and actually recommend if there's a better configuration to be had. Now, there's always there's always this question of I'd prefer this WAN circuit because this is my least cost provider and it's a, a provider that I have a global contract with. And I actually would prefer to have this particular WAN circuit take me to this application. But that's not always going to give you the best possible performance unless you have the visibility in, in, in place. And so what WAN Insights is doing is effectively saying, look, given your current SDUN setup, this is yeah. the best possible experience to be had. While at the same time, if you had data from thousand eyes across our agents that are looking at active synthetic probing, we can use that to actually understand underlying problems into mm -hmm. your actual WAN pads and also tied to broader internet outages because it's the data from the enterprise agents and cloud agents that feed into our global data set also around internet insights. So let me ask, um, it, it sounds to me like if, I, if I've already got SD-WAN, SD-WAN is already doing some path monitoring to make sure my applications are getting SLAs and based on policy where which link I want them to use. So I'm sort of getting that immediate feedback from the SD-WAN. It sounds like with WAN Insights, I'm getting a more long-term uh, view that you can then make, uh, I guess, forecasts based on, you know, every two weeks we see this kind of problem across this link. So maybe you want to think about changing your policy to avoid that problem. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So initially at the outset, 
um, what we're trying to do is prevent, you know, prevent users from having to make many, many SUN changes because this can involve right. you, this can <laughs> involve many change management windows, depending upon if you actually directly control the SUN setup or you have a managed service provider, you could have additional layers of essentially process to go through to actually make changes on a production network. So what we want to do is provide as much value as possible at the outset without requiring a lot of SUN changes, configuration changes. And the way we're doing that is basically looking at long-term data sets and providing yeah. recommendations that actually can be, uh, you know, looking at confidence levels. We can actually predict that this would be active for, you know, weeks, if not months at a time. And what this long-term recommendation is doing is effectively looking at problems that can essentially be um, um, forecasted because of problems we see repeatedly across your SD-WAN. Right. Now, we so can't this always... Is, this is a step towards Cisco predictive networks. This is the major strategy where Cisco's committing down to deep learning, machine learning, AI, where you're able to effectively say, we can see from, a, from you know doing the modeling that this is a known predictable issue and this is something that you should look into. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. what we want to be able to do is allow our network teams to effectively automate away problems that can be forecasted. Now we right, can't, yeah. we can't always, you know, forecast, we obviously can't forecast <laughs> problems like a fiber cut or things that really are outlier <laughs> events. Um, yeah. But, but at the same time, we know we can actually see a lot of these problems that happen again and again and again. And mm. can we actually provide insight back to our users that allow us to want if in, at the outset, actually make those changes using some user input and over time, how do we actually automate that? So our users never have to worry about that. Yeah, I think this yeah. is interesting because what we hear from customers about SD-WAN in general is that it kind of just works and so they don't necessarily have to keep an eye on it, which means they could be missing these sort of long-term problems that show up repeatedly over a long stretch of time that are actually having a performance impact that may be masked by the fact that SD-WAN can at that instant, you know, switch to another link. And so, you know, there's a problem, but it's not a long-term problem. So what you're saying is by gathering historical data, you're able to see kind of historical problems that might get missed sort of in that day-to-day, -day, just looking at the screen right now kind of moment. Yep, exactly. And what we've also realized in talking to customers is many customers, when they as they migrate to SD-WAN or adopt SD-WAN, they go through this multi-year journey. And in the beginning, they're using SD-WAN for sort of this software-defined, you know, centralized way of controlling their WAN, but they're mm -hmm. still actually not using all the powers of SD-WAN that already exist, like application-wide routing and being able to reroute, because it requires configuration and management and tweaking over time. Actually, like something like, you know, a quarter to a half of all the SD-WAN customers actually don't use the automation that's already there around rerouting across bad problems. They use SD-WAN specifically around just core traditional routing, but through this decentralized portal that you, that's used for software-defined networking. And so what WAN Insights is actually doing is for even users that don't have these custom policies set up at the outset, by simply turning on WAN Insights and looking at real-time data, we can actually provide you recommendations on how to best configure SD-WAN over time. Okay. And just so I understand, the, this WAN Insights capability is right now specifically tied to Cisco SD-WAN uh, specifically. Yeah. So in the beginning, we've spent a lot of time researching on how do we build this 
on top of Cisco SD-WAN, which is previously kind of Viptela. And what this is allowing us to do is effectively use, you know, the, the Cisco vManage, Cisco vAnalytics um, that allows us to actually use the data collected from the routers to be able to run our algorithm and provide the recommendations. We've mm-hmm. built it in a way that's agnostic to any SD-WAN technology that we can provide recommendations for. And so we'd be looking for ways to actually use WAN insights across other SD-WAN portfolio members across Cisco as well. Okay, so you're starting with Cisco SD-WAN at the outset, but you've set it up. It sounds like because one of the reasons Mm -hmm. is using flow records that this could apply to other SD-WAN products down the line. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. A quick question on how WAN insights interacts with my Cisco SD-WAN. When it identifies a potential improvement, does it automatically interact with the controller to make that change? Or is it more of, uh, hey, uh, network engineers, I found this uh, potential optimization. Do you want to implement it? Yeah. So currently we're in what's called private preview mode, which means that it's an invite only um, where certain customers that we've been working with or we think are high value can actually provide us some of the feedback that we need. Today, the recommendations that are generated are actually uh, generate for the users to act, act upon themselves. Okay. So there's not an automation kind of flow built in that allows us to basically either click a button or even automatically go to vManage, enact a configuration change that takes advantage of this recommendation. We do provide within the product really ability to essentially actually forecast what the benefits would be. So if you went into WAN Insights, we actually look at look at a look back, looking historically, mm-hmm. if the recommendation was active, what would the benefit have been for oh, this application for this site? Mm-hmm. And if you if you enact this recommendation, what would the benefit be in the future? Um, and so what we're actually doing currently is actually working with our customers to enact these in at scale so we can continue to kind of build confidence. And down the road, we have kind of essentially the partnership with the routing team at Cisco to be able to make sure that we can have the APIs that we need to be able to enact these these, these changes that are high confidence that can be automated. Got it. Well, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Prob, uh, I think you've raised a lot of interesting potential here with WAN Insights. If folks want to find out more about it, where should they go? Yeah, they can actually right now go to uh, www.cisco.com. Uh, Thousand Eyes WAN Insights is featured on our website, on the Cisco website, where they can explore a little bit more about Thousand Eyes overall and also WAN Insights. Specifically, WAN Insights um, is what's what, what I just mentioned is under private preview. So um, if you'd like access to this and actually you know, put your hands to the product, feel free to reach out to your Cisco account teams that you'd interface with directly or your partner teams. And we'd, we'd happy to be in touch and make sure that the product team can onboard you and, and actually work with you to get your feedback. Fantastic. And we'll have some links in the show notes for folks who want to get more information. Well, thank you, Prab, for joining us. And thanks to Thousand Eyes for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Listen to us on iTunes and rate us on Spotify. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.